Does this sound like you? I love starting projects. Not so great at finishing them. Selling is really scary, and I don't like promoting myself or my work. I check my email, Instagram, or the fridge instead of what I sat down to do. Both of my plates are full. Wait, you have more than one plate? I'm a total pro at making to-do lists, doing the to-dos, not so much. I don't have a lot of friends in business to hold me accountable. Oh, wait, look, shiny object. If any of that sounds like you, no shame. You're not alone. This is what the box was created for. The box is a community-driven container for creatives. Stay accountable, do the work, and actually finish what you started. Because amazing things happen on the other side of finished. Go to theboxworkshop.com to join today. You just can't will yourself to show up in ways that are out of integrity to how you would treat someone on the street. I'm Bill Small. And I'm Miles Hansen. Welcome to The Subtle Art of Not Yelling, a weekly podcast for creatives about the creative process. Learn how to finish what you start, ship your work, and build a business without being the loudest on the block. Less Less noise, noise, more... copywriter marketers turn to when they're launching programs or setting up funnels. He's been called more reclusive than J.D. Salinger on a rainy day, and you can't find him many places online. But you can find him here with us. Our guest today is Rye Schwartz. You're a writer, so you wanted to be writing. You started out uh, wanting to work in film, yeah? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I... Went the typical educational path. I got the marketing degree because that's just what people were kind of doing. And I I got kind of like edged into those places. And then um, then it was really 2008 when kind of everything shifted for me, right? It was, um, it was the economic crisis then. I was working like my entry-level corporate job, you know, show up with the shirt and tie every day and go into your cubicle and try to be happy, you know, try to be happy. Um, (laughs) And um, it was around the same time that, um, what was that movie with Brad Pitt? It was um, was, uh, uh, the Benjamin Button movie, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. And like 10 years earlier when I was like, 15, I was like, I had that idea in a coffee shop. I'm like, what if we wrote a story about this guy who aged backwards. Wouldn't that be cool? And my friends are like, nah, no one would ever go for that. So like, I saw Benjamin Button, and I'm like, they stole my idea. But they didn't, because it was based on a short story from 100 years earlier, so no one <laughs> stole anything. But, um, but it made me kind of, it really motivated me to write my stories right when I have them. And um, I started writing my first screenplay 
while trying to get laid off from my corporate job because they were going through massive upheavals and everyone was begging for their job. I was begging for a severance package. So. I've never heard, heard anybody say that. I was writing while I was trying to get laid off from my job. Yeah, that was, awesome. that was my, big, my big goal, my big ambition. It didn't happen, right? It was like a game of corporate chicken where they're like, he's going to quit before you know, he gets a severance package. Wow. And I did, right? Um, and I did, and I went on to um, write movies full-time for three years. And um, it was fun. It was such an interesting part of my life, right? And it was an exhilarating part of my life. Um, you know, things actually gained traction a lot faster than they typically should have or would have, you know, in terms of, getting producers and agents to read my stuff and getting movies optioned, you know, and it was a fun ride. Um, and I kind of stayed involved with that for years after, you know, starting the copywriting journey as well. Um, but yeah, fond memories of that whole, whole experience. Super interesting. How I'm so curious how you made the leap into the copywriting world and mm. then if that kind of naturally leads into, you know, um, coaching the conversion, which is yeah, certainly super fascinating. Cool. I mean, copywriting was accidental, right? I was, you know, about two or three years into the screenwriting journey, and it was such a fun but cruel journey at the same time, right? Like, I wish the doors had just slammed and said, like, no, this just ain't gonna work for you, right? But there were enough enough breadcrumbs, right, to keep me going, even though I wasn't getting paid a livable wage for it yet. Um, and then I just became, you know, desperate. I'm like, I need to not be living in my mother's basement. I hate living up to stereotypes, right? Like stereotypes suck. And I'm like, I am that stereotype. The screenwriter but, living right? in his mother's basement in Canada. T totally. Exactly. And I'm like, damn it, that stereotype is right. And I'm not, I'm not enjoying that part. Um, so I started just looking for any job with the word writer in it, right? And I did some freelance writing for like um, organic mattress companies like editing their catalogs and I'm like, okay, that's not really cutting it. I got paid $75 to write a catalog. That was my first like copywriting job. And then I found one of one of the only, probably one of five jobs in all of Montreal or Quebec that was hiring for an English speaking copywriter for this agency. And I, I wasn't I wasn't fully attuned to what a copywriter was, like that whole space. I just knew it had the word writer in it. And I'm like, I kind of do that, right? Let's just go for it. So I went in with very little expectations, quite non-attached to getting it or not getting it because I was still quite anti-full-time job at the time. Um, there's a music festival in Montreal every year called Oceaga. And I remember I was going to that festival right after. So I was in my like festival gear, just ready to like, do this interview beforehand. And I don't know, the relaxedness. And I actually enjoyed the marketing director I was speaking with. She was new on the job too. She was there with full of excitement. And we just connected on a really human level, right? And there was a lot of resonance between us and a lot of possibility in um, collaborating in a creative aspect, right? And I think that's ultimately why she handed me the job. And I showed up. You know, day one, this was 
this is late 2012, September 2012. Wow, 10 years ago. <laughs> um, and I walk into the building and I realize I had, you know, a whole office set up for this job, like your own big closed door office. And I'm like, damn, this might be more important than I thought it is. Um, and I remember I was like half an hour earlier than anyone else because it was like first day and I just turned on the computer and it took forever to load because it was, I don't know what it was running, but who knows. And I remember just like, you know, panicking at that moment. I'm like, okay, I somehow got this job. It's more important than I thought it was. And I just Googled, you know, what is copywriting? And I went down a rabbit hole and I just consumed it all. And the first thing that came up was Copy Hackers that launched their, um, Joanna was like blogging really heavily at the time, ranking for all the articles. Um, and I just consumed everything from her, from HubSpot. HubSpot was publishing so much at that time as well. And just inhaling it, going home at night and just learning enough to be able to hold my own in the conversation the next day, right? And win the day, win the next day, win the next day, win the next day. And then sure enough, you know, four months later, you kind of know your stuff. <laughs> and um, that was the ride. And it just was mind blowing, right? That, you know, less than two years after Googling what is copywriting, I ended up partnering with copy hackers and, um, publishing and partnering with um, partnering with Joanna on one of the you know top selling training suites in the industry a few years later. So a lot of magical synchronicities, a lot of you know grace and just finding the right support and partnership when I needed it most. Um, and it's all been kind of miraculous. I've always considered myself more of a career nomad than someone with very hard fixed goals of saying, I need to do this, I need to be the best at that. I've been historically quite casual about my career path um, and somehow it's worked. So here we are 10 years later and yeah, not let, not living in my mother's basement, but I'm still in my basement <laughs> with artwork that was just hung. So yeah. Well, and I guess the basement thing uh, makes sense because I keep reading that you're as reclusive or elusive as J.D. Salinger. So. Yeah. Yeah, that I, was, I don't really know what it means, but I assume there was a basement involved. <laughs> so many basements, <laughs> basements and corners of coffee shops. Um, I think that reputation came about because you know, from 2014 to 2017, which is when I really had like my run as an A-list copywriter, as they call him. You know, writing for a lot of the bigger launches for people like Amy Porterfield and Todd Herman and Dan Martell and London Real and like working on these multi-million dollar launches, even though I never felt the bigness of it because I was writing from the corner of a coffee shop, right? And I was, and I never identified as someone with career goals in that realm, right? I was still very much involved in the screenwriting process and copywriting was just a thing that was sustaining and, you know, generating a good living and all that stuff. But I always identified more as you know, an artist as a writer, not a copywriter. So I was quite unattached to that world and not necessarily willing to hang my existential hat on that identity. So there was no online presence about it. My Facebook profile never read Ryan, the copy, the launch copywriter Schwartz, right? I never personally branded that way. Um, I never really went to the industry events because it, you know, big events weren't my thing. 
Um, I didn't have a website because I didn't want to double down on that. I almost wanted to have less attention and less demand on my time and energy there. Like it was certainly um, flattering, right? Being valued and being sought after and being wanted for something and feeling like I could add value. And at the same time, when it's not something you necessarily love and feel feels dear to your heart, at some point it also feels a bit like a burden, right? It's like, oh, why does this person want me to do this thing, right? No matter how much you're getting paid. And that's always been my relationship with client work and copywriting as a whole. It was never this wholesome, I'm fully available for it. And yeah, that was kind of my journey into being the reclusive side, right? Um, I wouldn't answer my contact form when I finally did have a website, like, you know, and I've had a running joke a few years later when I've ghosted on some of the bigger industry names, right? And I'm like, sorry about that, you know, my bad. <laughs> um, but where I did start finding a lot of love for the craft was in unpacking what I was doing and why I was doing it, right? So there was a lot of attention that came onto my work that okay, this guy writes in a way that is significantly different than what is traditionally being done in the copywriting space. He's not screaming at people. He's not twisting their arms. He's not generating all this fear and anxiety and trying to blunt force his way to a sale. And I didn't do any of that because I couldn't, right? Like You just can't will yourself to show up in ways that are out of integrity to how you would treat someone on the street. And that mattered to me, right? And if I was going to show up in this profession, in this career that I was not fully attached to anyway, I was certainly going to take big swings and bigger risks and trying to do it in a way that felt right. And that's where the whole coaching the conversion ethos came into play. It was something that was first exercised within these bigger client projects and then um, when Joanna like asked me to partner on the first email course we were doing together, it was called 10x emails. She's like, you know, can you just unpack what you've been doing like this whole time for all these clients? And I'm like, well, I could try. <laughs> you know, so that's how that came about. And the more I taught it and the more I explained it and the more I dived deeper into my own process, the more I started actually feeling an enjoyment and a fulfillment in being in that world. Because I wasn't trying to force myself into someone else's game anymore. I was really creating one that was more of my own design. And it took a life of its own. And I started seeing that other copywriters felt liberated in how they can write copy. And I saw other business owners actually generating tremendous success using these methods. And that's when it started feeling real, you know, beyond just my own personal process in the back of a coffee shop to something that was actually having a real positive impact on a lot of people in this space. And yeah, that was a special moment. So wait a minute, Ry, are you saying that I don't have to jump up and down, look like an idiot, and mm. scare the crap out of you to sell you something? I mean, you can if that lights you up. <laughs> but, um, I'm willing <laughs> well, to bet it doesn't. For the permission. I yeah. Like that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's exactly it, right? I was, I was conflicted by the same thing, right? You know, early on in my career, like I was writing copy for clients who were expecting that sort of thing, and you know, 
and red marker on my copy saying like, you're not ramping up the urgency here enough, right? You're not, you know, having a caps, all caps in the subject line saying doors closing now. And I'm like, what doors? They're metaphorical. They don't exist, you know? Um, <laughs> so, so not everyone resonated with it. Um, but those who did and really got what I was trying to communicate did use it and use it well. And ultimately, you know, the audiences they wanted to attract were the ones who were never going to buy from feeling bludgeoned by words anyway, right? And that to me felt like such a major relief, you know, and where I just developed great bonds with all these amazing copywriters and marketers who, of course, wanted to be ethical and integrity without sacrificing, you know, their livelihoods and the results that could come with it. So, Yes, you don't you don't have to scream up scream and jump and yell and wear a chicken suit and <laughs> all the things. So cool. Um yeah, I, I came from that world too, and it was very like high pressure, definitely urgency, scarcity. It it all revolved around that and uh mm-hmm. it really pushed me away. So when I found Phil originally, which led mm-hmm. me to you and y'all's community. Uh, it was like a breath of fresh air. Like you don't mm-hmm. have to do all this craziness that doesn't align with your energy mm-hmm. to grow a business um, and do marketing and build build a brand. So I'd love to open up the hood a little bit behind um, automated intimacy, coaching the conversion. What's your goal with all this? And I'd love to kind of look into how it works like from a, a tangible level. Mm-hmm. The goal is to impact one million marketers. No, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I was just having um, a fun conversation um, the other day about impact and that as a buzzword, right? And man, like impacting a million people, like I'd settle for being able to actually feel the impact I'm making on five or 10 people, right? Like, right. I don't have a big overarching goal or mission for this work. It's really a creative canvas at this stage where I know the skills I've developed, I know the creativity I've developed in this space. And even with automated intimacy, it was just one of those light bulb moments. I'm like, this is where we're going to take it right now, right? And you present it. So I've never created any program through the typical method of surveying your audience, right? And making sure there's a market for it. And not to say that that isn't, you know, not a good way and not a sound way to go about building a product, but it's not the way I've operated in my own creative energy. For me, it's like, nope, this just clicks. And I used to do that in the screenwriting world, right? I wrote spec screenplays that I wasn't getting paid for. I woke up with an idea saying, yep, that's a story. And you'd invest three months, three hours a day writing a first draft that you weren't sure anyone would ever buy, right? Anyone would even read. So I was used to taking those creative risks already. And that's just translated into my work in this space. So automated intimacy came from the same vein, right? Like coaching the conversion was first expressed in a very specific context, right? How do we coach that conversion within a program launch, right? Where you have 14 days, you have these leads, you have this product. That's one very specific and narrow context. Then I brought in that and how do we do that on a sales page, right? Where you have one asset, one conversation. How do you do it from top to bottom? Then I did um, 
engineering the enrollment? How do you do that on a 45-minute conversation, right? An ethical sales conversation where you're not, once again, um, doing all the dirty tricks, right? And getting people to feel insecure, feel this massive gap, feel like they're absolutely screwed if they don't buy your product. How do you actually empower people to be the type of people who can give a positive yes if it is a good fit? So I worked with it in that context. And automated intimacy was kind of like what I viewed to be um, more of a meta model for all of that, right? You know, it was like, a launch is great, but it's a specific context, right? How do we actually create a broader framework that's more adaptable? So it was like, obviously not a beginner beginner program. You know, it's one where there's a high level of thinking and only people who have some degree of marketing experience and copywriting experience and sales experience can really dive into, see the principles at play, and then adapt them accordingly. But I'd suppose, I suppose the main principle behind automated intimacy was this realization that, you know, all these marketers, all these business owners have been bred into feeling like the holy grail is to create all these one-to-many experiences and sell at scale, right? Um, And the vast majority of marketers and coach creators don't have 100,000 people on their email list. They don't have, you know, indefinite ad budgets, right? And they're playing a game that isn't suited for their goals, which is really connecting with those in their ecosystem, having real human connections and conversations there, and actually seeing in a quicker time cycle, you know, how can we help? How can we partner? What is it that you're really interested in at this time? And, you know, a lot of that was missed in favor of, you know, long nurture sequences, right? And then maybe four months later, they'd finally see the program that they might have been interested in ready for on day one. So it was all about creating those magical synchronicities. And I'll give you like one example that always stands out that really fits the perfect intention for what automated intimacy is. So our first playbook that we teach is so simple. It's called The Enchanting First Encounter. And it's essentially once someone joins your email list, right? Um, Active campaign creates like a task that says, you know, so-and-so joined, reach out with a 45 second video, right? And we get pinged with that. And the video is simple. It's to make someone feel seen and honored and non-anonymous, right? Anonymity or presumed anonymity is the number one reason why people won't engage. Why would you engage in something where you don't even know you're being seen in that relationship, right? Um, Imagine walking into a party, right? If you walked in there and no one acknowledged you, I'd be the person to just chill in the corner with my phone until I could walk out and make, you know, a socially acceptable escape. But if you walk into a party and you're greeted, right, and you're introduced to someone and you're shown around, what's the likelihood that you're going to A, actually participate, B, enjoy yourself, C, you know, have a very positive experience at the end of the day? So um, that was the basis of the first playbook, Enchanting First Encounter, and we use it internally. And um, a few months ago, actually probably closer to like eight months ago now, uh, this wonderful woman, um, Julia, Julia Frodal, who's this amazing yoga teacher, compassion coach. Um, she works in different shamanistic traditions and Buddhist traditions, and she came onto the list, and rather than her going through just 
the indefinite nurture sequence, right? That is great scaffolding, but not a great relationship builder. Um, Phil actually, Phil was actually the one who sent, you know, the short video just saying, Hey, just want to welcome you to our community. I'm super curious, like what brought you over and, you know, what are you working on and how can we help? Right. Very friendly, not forceful, just, you know, welcome and what's your intent, right? Because there was a preceding intent to get there. Um, and very quickly, within literally three hours, we get the full story and the intent, right? And we could act skillfully from there. And she ended up being an incredible one-to-one client for a few months. And now uh, me and my partner are a client of hers, right? She's become kind of a compassion coach and counselor to me and my partner, right? And there's that magical synchronicity and value exchange that doesn't happen unless you create the space and opportunities for that to happen. So that's very much what automated intimacy is. It's using these automated tools, right? Like lead scoring, like CRMs, like all the things that feel so far away from human connection, but using them to create human connection at greater scale. So cool. Uh, I'm actually a little bit speechless right at the moment. (laughs) The Box was created for people like us. People who suffer from unfinished work, shiny object syndrome, fear of selling, lone wolf syndrome, going it alone, procrastination, perfectionism. The Box is a container and community for creatives to stay accountable do the work, and actually finish what you start. We don't always do well with discipline, consistency, and grinding our way through the creative process. We're not machines, but we also want our businesses to thrive. We want to build wealth and create a lot of cool stuff for the world. It's for someone who needs to get things done. So how does it work? It's simple. Live co-working sessions, coaching and support, accountability, and community. That's it. It's not teaching you anything new. It's giving you the structure to create with what you already know because amazing things happen on the other side of finished. Go to theboxworkshop.com to sign up and join the community. In the box, you'll finish what you started. We've talked to your your a magical business partner. Okay. And... Uh, uh, Phil Powis and uh, Miles and I have talked about this. The way you just put that, I had this thought as you were speaking, like, "Wow, I didn't even know that was possible." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't and know it was things, possible either. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all things internet marketing mm-hmm. have always, at least uh, on the on the success side of it. Mm-hmm. Have always seemed so must force, must manipulate, must bro market the crap out of this quantity. You know, slam it, slam it, scale it, scale it, money, yeah. money, money. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting, right? Like for so long, I felt like I needed to wait for the tides to change on that, for the world to shift, for the market to mm-hmm. no longer resonate with that, and it would bother me that it still worked to a certain degree. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and I would fall for the cushy idealism of those who create the most value win at the end of the day, those who treat their audience with the most respect win at the end of the day. And 
you know, I came to this place of peace and comfort two years ago, right? That like, you don't need to wait for a tide to fully shift to start enacting it in yourself, right? And you don't even need the quote unquote bad guys to lose in order to feel good about yourself, right? It's like, there will be people who win playing that game and there will be people who resonate with that because that's just simply what they are responsive to and that's okay. But the good news is, is there's this constantly growing aspect of the market that just won't tolerate it, you know, that won't tolerate it in themselves and the way they work. And there's nothing but opportunity for those who choose to play a more ethical and leadership-based game. When I talk about being ethical, I'm not talking about not having direction and leadership, right? Yes. It's not loose, it's not limbristed, it's not, you know, maybe you should do this, maybe, like, it still has direction and it still has purpose, but it has um, a certain compassion to it and it has a sense or an orientation towards empowering people towards decisions that are going to be most favorable towards them. When you talk about it, it it doesn't sound any different than what I might do when I meet and I'm in a room with a new group of people, mm-hmm. and I'm just meeting people and having conversations with them. Right. And we're listening to each other, and if there's an opportunity for me to help someone, then I might say, "Hey, why don't you let me help you with that?" Or mm-hmm. vice versa. They might I'm, they might say something, and I might say, "Yeah, I need some help with that." Mm-hmm. It sounds like you have created with automated intimacy a way to to actually do that online. Yeah, that's our that's our goal, and that's our orientation. If if we have this big goal and this big mission, um, I think you just nailed it for me and gave me the verbiage to express it. So I appreciate You're that. Welcome. Yes. I'll send you an invoice later. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is so cool because I mean we're Bill, we're at like a year, just over a year doing this podcast. And this is yeah. this conversation is literally the epitome of why we started this. It's the this entire is the whole point. reason that we started it. It's the right. whole reason that we have the title we have, the yeah. subtle art of not yelling. Like this is it. Yeah. You just underpin the whole thing. Oh man. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's just great timing and um, very refreshing to have this and hopefully share this with some people that it is possible to do this. And um, I want to go back really quick to something that stuck with me. You said when you first got the copywriting job, mm-hmm. you didn't even know what copywriting really was. Right. And you really just took it day by day, literally, just literally learning as much day. as you could. Yeah. And then you had, and then you said the word that I love so much and resonate with, which is career nomad. Mm-hmm. So you seem to be someone who is very present and spontaneous, mm-hmm. but takes the action on that right? immediately instead of like putting it off and getting distracted. So mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about that a little bit and what that looks like today for you. Are you still very spontaneous and um, kind of living on the forefront of that thought and action Mm. Um, do you have more structure and planning now around it? What does it look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, through my mid-20s and late 20s, I'd say I was fairly absent structure, or at least self-generated structure. What gave me structure and coherence then 
were the yeses and agreements I would give to other partners, right? So when I say yes to Joanna, all of a sudden life reorients around that because I've always been very solid in my commitments and my agreements. So that's always been a guiding principle is if I say yes to this client, right, and that's a major launch, now I have structure for the foreseeable future. If I agree to this partnership, I have structure. So a lot of the structure was created from the outside in um, for the, from the first, you know, first portion of my career, right, up until I'd say um, just a few years ago. Um, fatherhood kind of flipped that on its side for me, right? So my son is turning five next week and man from the second he was born all of a sudden like um focused productive hours were slashed by half while financial demands doubled and i'm like oh my goodness this is like a net 4x or 5x like gap that i need to now get really really dialed in about so i'd say that's where things shifted in terms of structure being developed you know inside out versus outside in and it's far better that way right because the outside in it's very difficult to not feel imposed on and feel this simmering not resentment but like man i didn't create this for myself and my energy is being poured into an expectation right versus something that is more self-generated um yeah so these days you know there is structure um you know there's three businesses that I'm actively a part of and there are goals and projects and launches associated with them. Um, there's still quite a lot of opportunity and room for spontaneous creativity that, you know, I keep, I guard that time, right? And a lot of that is weekend time because I've always been quite adamant that sometimes adding a project doesn't necessarily take away from the others, but it keeps the creative muscle from atrophying, right? And if I feel like I am suppressed or not fully expressed in one direction, not doing that would actually have a negative effect and this negative relationship to all the other things on my plate. So I have this habit, right, of taking on too much simultaneously. And a lot of that is done consciously, right? Because I feel like that keeps me in flow of everything else. Um, so perfect example right now, um, you know, I have my business with Phil. Obviously, we're coming close to a launch right now for automated intimacy, and that's requiring, you know, a fair amount of resources and energy. And then at the same time, I just launched, um, well, we launched this new media company and this new newsletter just two weeks ago. And there was a major push of energy and effort around that. And there's no immediate payday on that. And I'm not doing it for an immediate payday. I'm doing it because that's where my writing has naturally oriented towards. Um, the book that I'm publishing later this year, right? Like that didn't fit within any business plan. It won't have a lift on my core businesses. Um, a lot of people would consider that to be a waste of 80,000 words and I don't know how many hundreds of hours over the last few years. But I did it because it was necessary. Right, the cost of not doing that would have created a sense of creative betrayal, which would have only caused further disharmony with the projects that are "quote unquote" the money makers. So, yes, there's structure. Yes, there is room and necessary expression of the things that are most meaningful and matterful. 
And yes, there has always been a high degree of consistency in my work, right? I, I show up, <laughs> you know, that's been probably my one saving grace for 10 years of my career is rarely a day goes by where I'm not giving voice to one of these projects in some way, shape, or form. Um, I'm, I'm loyal to the projects that have been loyal and great towards me, and there's a relational quality to that. And sometimes, you know, I don't get writer's block. Sometimes I'm less keen on giving voice to something, you know, but I kind of relate it, relate some of these creative projects to, you know, my relationship with my partner, right? And you could look at the masculine, feminine polarities and all that. I'm like, I'll show up for this. I'll give it my full presence. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I'll, I'll be here and I'll sit with you for the next hour. And if we say nothing to each other, I'll just hold you and love you. And if you want to say something, um, I'm all for it. And I'm all for the dance and you show up for that. And more times than not, the dance is beautiful and it is fruitful and it is invigorating. Um, and it does reveal something to you about yourself that you didn't know prior. So that's my process. I love that you just boiled down your entire process to just show up. Right? That's that's a simple way to say it, right? That's the name of the next book, Just Show Up. You know? <laughs> well, since you brought it up, what is this book that's coming out? Yeah, yeah so I kept it under wraps for so long, um, but now it's public, so I'll just say it. It's called The Seven Initiatory Fires of Modern Manhood, and I was cautioned not to use the word initiatory because it's so hard to say out loud and no one would ever recommend it to their friends because they fear not being able to say it. <laughs> they said, just, just change it to the seven fires. People could say that. And I'm like, initiatory, it must be there. Yeah. So um, that was my own stubbornness. But that was a book I started writing um, two and a half years ago, probably three years ago. Um fatherhood just, man, that was seismic in how it reoriented reality um, for greater context. You know, I never planned on being a father. I was quite certain I wouldn't be one in this lifetime, that it was just not for me, right? Um, I enjoyed my quiet. I enjoyed um, the zero latency period between inspired idea and the action around it, whether that was going to the mountains, taking a trip, whatever it was. Um, I just didn't see myself playing that card. Um, and it happened, like miraculous circumstances that I won't get into, but like it was a cosmic hole in one, <laughs> right? Almost, it just, yeah. it shouldn't have happened and it happened. And, um, and I remember when it happened, like, and how initiatory that moment felt. Um, I was with my partner um, in Costa Rica um, at a festival there called Envision Festival as part of this uh, beautiful mastermind. And we were considered li considering living the more nomadic life at that stage. And we're just going to travel and do that whole thing, right? And she was feeling a little sick at the festival and I'm like, that makes sense. You know, it's everyone feels sick at a festival. Um, and then we were probably in the most awkward possible context after that. We went from Costa Rica to um, Dana Point, California, right outside of Laguna beach. Um, 
where my parents were. My my parents were vacationing there in a little condo. Um, my sister was there with her husband and her kid, and we decided we would join them for two days, right? And that was pre-planned. So we're all stuffed in this little condo, and Sue is still not feeling so hot. And um, we had plans that day to drive up to um, drive down, I guess, geographically to um, Encinitas um, uh, to meet some friends for lunch. And she was supposed to come, and she just she's like, Ryan, I'm sorry, like I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> and she uh, she ended up. Um, purging on Swami Beach. Sorry, Yogananda. Like our bad. Um, I'm sure we're forgiven, but um, but yeah, that's where it hit her, right? And and we went to the pharmacy and got the test just in case, right? Just just in case, just like calm my mind, reassure me, right? And uh, we brought it back to the condo and snuck into the bathroom, and everyone was still there, right? It was still this madhouse in the condo. And I remember, like, we're sitting on the floor, and I was ninety nine percent certain it would come back negative, and it's it's positive. And time to stand still. We're in this little box, and families all around us, and we can't even process the enormity of that shock. And we didn't process the enormity of that shock. Um, it was just cataclysmic to so many egoic structures that just didn't foresee that as being part of our path. And um, I remember, you know, we had to just leave that bathroom, right? And I I took her outside and I didn't necessarily believe it myself, but I'm like, I'm like, we got this, like we're, we got this. Like it was, there was no optionality. It didn't even cross our mind about not having it. I'm like, I don't know how we're going to get this, but we're going to do it, and it's happening. And I'm I'm with you in this. And I wasn't ready to live up to my words yet, and that's what made it initiatory. Is I was called towards something that was not yet available to me in my capacities, but I knew that I was going to get there. And and yeah, it took longer than I thought, but I but I think I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm on my I'm on my way to getting there, but. Well, I wow. hope you do because that way I'm going to call you and say, how did you do that? Because right. my son's about to turn 11. Mm. I feel like parenting is still out of my capacities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and one day you and I are going to have to hang out, drink some coffee or something else mm. and uh, and share uh, impossible, didn't think I was going to have a kid parenting right. story. Oof, that sounds like a perfect conversation. So <laughs> That was uh, uh, crazy. I mean, that, that story gave me chills. Mm. When yeah. you, in, the, in the box, surrounded by everyone, and time just mm-hmm. stood still. Like, mm-hmm. damn. Yeah. But I, love, I love how, you know, for you, I mean, you just related that to the shift in how you work. Mm-hmm. Right and and having to put more structure in because now there's all these logistical realities that you have to deal right. with. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a writer, mm-hmm. one I've been wondering for like ten minutes now: Do you still write screenplays? Oof! Ever? Yeah, you know what? Um, I guess the the best way to answer that is I'm not presently writing a screenplay. Gotcha. Um, I'm but present. it's like it's not like I won't ever do that again. I won't. No, it's not like that. I'd say, you know, 
towards the end of, I, w- I won't even say the end of that career because there's still one screenplay I wrote not so long ago that I really do want to get made and find a way to get made. Um, so I wouldn't consider myself fully retired from that world. But um, but the last few years of it leading up until 2018 were difficult. There were enough moments that at least made me come to a certain degree of peace of not playing the game the way I was. Um, there were two movies that I had in various forms of like pre-production, right? They were optioned. One of them I got paid to write and hired to write. Um, and then there were some very clear signs that, um, and I won't get into all the nitty gritty details, but you know, that that wasn't going to happen. And then the other one that was really dear to my heart and it had such a, such an amazing aligned team behind it. And it felt like it was all syncing up so beautifully. Like it really did. Um, it had a producer who, you know, was so passionate about it. She had just, she had literally just won an Oscar for Birdman the year before, right? Um, Birdman. I think it was called Birdman, the one with. It's um, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the ongoing camera work with no right. cuts. Yeah. Wow. Like incredible. Um, we had an actor attached who is like a childhood idol, and I'm not going to name drop, but like. Like I'm like, holy crap, this person's going to play a character that I wrote and we're going to be in the same room talking about this. And I had this guy's posters in my room at their, like, what? And, and it just felt so there, right? It felt, it didn't feel like reality was forcing itself. Like it felt like it was opening up to what was so natural and real and um, it fell through, like typical Hollywood story. The director and the actor just weren't jiving. Um, you lose the director, which at that stage of the process is essentially suicidal to the film. Um, and all the air gets sucked out of the project, right? Because so much was pushed to get it to that stage that how much is really left to give and give it another boost. And and that was kind of it for me, right? Um, to me, that was a 10 on 10 project in terms of the love I put into it and how it felt leading up to it. And to realize that, you know, at some point there is an element of complete luck beyond my control, um, made it feel somewhat foolish to invest myself so heavily into that again at this stage of my life. Um, So not from a jaded perspective, but just from an unwillingness to play that dance again, right? When it felt like there were so many other experiences um, that I wanted to have. Um, So the short answer is, you know, I'm done with certain elements of screenwriting, but the writing process itself and the openness to finding a more aligned and fruitful way to bring a project to life, I'm certainly still open to. Well, I feel you. After 40 years in the entertainment business, all I can say is it's brutal. Mm-hmm. And there's parts of it I'm not going to do anymore. Right. For the same reason. It's mm-hmm. it's it's soul-crushing and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the the writing... 
mm-hmm. the writing process for you. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're still writing. Yeah. Uh, and and we already know your process is just just show up. Just show up. Um, how does that work for you? Does that mean you show up and write something at some point every day? Mm. Um, what what does it look like? Yeah. So at any given time, there are probably three or four projects that are most active and most meaningful, right? And um, you know, the book was one of them. The newsletter that I have around it right now um, called ICU King, which is in the men's personal growth space. That's one of them, and that's an amazing open channel, right? Because it's not a book. It's it's an it's inspiration based. The essays I'm writing for that are what I feel are most true and active in any given moment. Um, and then of course I have all my work in the marketing and sales space, which once again, the joy of having a community is being able to share things when they are true and real and pressing. So I don't, it's funny, the first hour or hour and a half of my day, the first coffee, um, isn't blocked off on my calendar as this project or this project. It's show up and first tune in, you know, which one do I want to work on right now? Right. Um, and I give my, my first work session to whichever feels most present, most at the fingertips. Um, and then the just show up for the other projects, there will be, you know, some days blocked off for one and the other, but those days are blocked off, right? I do make sure I get the just show up sessions for any project that, um, I'm endeavoring to move forward. Um, and these days, obviously, it looks different. Not everything is a writing project. A lot of my work is, you know, serving clients. A lot of my work is um, is recording videos and trainings and lessons. But those all usually start with some form of writing. And um, yeah, usually when I just show up for it, I don't have to wait too long to uh, know what's going to happen. So yeah. Um, Bill, you stole my question about writing practice. Um, I have a random question. You know, you kind of, you come from the this, this space. What do you watch, if anything, when it comes to like shows, maybe movies, but particularly shows? Are you watching any shows right now? And what do you have against The Office? What do I have against <laughs> The Office? Did I slander The Office at some point? I did. Oh right? yeah, it's out there. It's It's public. <laughs> Oh man, what did I say about the office? Did I say I don't get it or something like that? Um, yeah, yeah. You you hadn't really watched. Uh, you've only mm. seen clips of it. I think you. It mm. started with when people. Um, this is a cool topic too. How you mm. you you give people a very easy path to unsubscribing to opting out, mm-hmm. right? So you have that red. Oh link. yes, and yes, then closing they, time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. True. Our our opt out leads people to the office casting and closing time. So which is brilliant. There we have it. I think that um, would just immediately make me resubscribe. Right. <laughs> Maybe. You're banned for life. No. Um I don't really have anything against the office anymore. It's warmed up. It's warmed up on me. I just I'll I'll admit I still haven't seen a full episode. I've only seen clips. Um what am I actually Oh really? Okay, okay. Um, I think I could appreciate the humor in small doses. Put it that way. It's low. It's low hanging fruit, which it's sometimes fruit. is the sweetest. Yes. You know, what? I think 
to be fair to the office, I think the whole vibe of being in that world um, triggers my nervous system too yeah. much to relax to enjoy it. Um, Keep being it in that reality of working in that place, Dundler, Dundler Muffin, Dundler Miffin, what is <laughs> <Dunder> it? Mi- <laughs> yeah. Um, shows you how uneducated I am about the office. I can't watch shows where I could feel myself in that environment, even if it's a really well crafted show. Wow. Um, yeah. It's just, for whatever reason, too difficult um, to project myself in certain places. Right. Um, which is why I don't watch much of anything, to be honest. Um, cool. You know, I don't have a TV still. Um, when awesome. I move, when I moved out of my mother's basement, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna buy myself a nice TV, and that TV never happened, and it's ten years later, and I still don't have a TV. So, um, yeah, and then obviously, you know, when my son was born, we want to be pretty mindful about, you know, the TV stuff. So, TV never happened, and not a lot of shows look great on a. 15 inch MacBook Pro. So, um, I love it. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, I got into a lot of the fantasy shows. Game of Thrones was pretty cool. Um, what was the other one? Yeah, for whatever reason, I still got into like, what was the other one? Vikings and Peaky Blinders and all those, which I never. Yes, Vikings. Right? Yeah. I don't know why I love this. I don't know My why. My family I love this. thinks I'm crazy. Yeah. You know, I've watched all of them. It's, right. It's crazy. It's I hard. I know this, Bill. Vikings. It, it's hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Um, I assume I was one at some point. I don't know. You know, back in the. Yeah. I, re- I remember you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. My people came yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You guys both have Viking vibes. Viking vibes, yeah. So, so there we go. Um, I like very loud, violent, fantasy-based shows. Sometimes, um, there you go. Excellent. Yeah, well, love it. It's, I, it's escapism at its best, man. There we it's, go. And, uh, yeah, you know, that's what it's for. Mm-hmm. I love that you don't have a TV. It's awesome. The nature of your JD Salingerness and your uh, basement living may answer this question, but mm. would you consider yourself uh, more introverted or extroverted? Hmm. I mean, introvert, introverted is the obvious answer. I don't seek a lot of, you know, social socialization. I don't seek a lot of events. Um, you know, I'd say like over the years, I've grown to really appreciate connection more than I used to. Um, the right company is certainly additive and energizing and nourishing at this stage of my life. So, um, I'm not quite Salinger-esque anymore. That quote doesn't... I'm certainly not misanthropic. Um, I don't have a general disdain for humanity. Um, But, you know, I am sensitive to the company around me, right? And as I said, it's it's either additive and nourishing or it's draining and exhausting. Um, And at this stage, right, the boundaries you set kind of dictate more, you know, the realm you land in and that's true of your friendships your social circles um your clients right your business partners all of the above and um i'm fortunate enough to have curated um communities and all of the above that are mostly more nourishing than depleting so yeah yeah well, that's great so what is, i think i think i know the answer but um I like to ask, you know, what's next for you? What's kind of on the horizon? Obviously, you have the book. You've mm-hmm. got CTC Circle, which is a really powerful community. You've got automated mm-hmm. intimacy coming out. 
Um, is there anything else in between or what are you ex- most excited about? Mm, yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. You know, what's next over the next year, which is really the furthest my foresight? That would be foresight, right? Foresight, yeah. Um, see, once again, the hand motions. I'm not sure if people are just listening to this and they're not seeing that I'm pointing forward. Um, but yeah, in the next year, which is about as far as I can really take this question, I'm really excited about the book. Um, I feel like it is the most truthful and honest and revelatory writing I've produced. Um, I'm excited to see what that does and what that means, right? And what kind of impact that has, um, not in a massive sell 5 million copies kind of way, but, um, but in a very real, like this is an expression of what I feel to be, um, to be poignant and real and yeah, let's see what happens with that. So that's imminent and obviously building some degree of community and brand and business around that and seeing if that brand has, some viability to it. And that's exciting, giving giving rise and giving birth to a new mission. Um, CTC Circle and automated intimacy, the company with Phil, of course, that's you know what I wake up most days and am working on after my hour of of you know free for all. Um, but yeah, what I love most about that community, right, is once again, it's just a bunch of people that really inspire me and who are up to incredible things and who I resonate with. And, you know, we, when we have our group coaching calls, um, maybe Phil's been the lucky one and this has happened more on his, but like it goes so much beyond automation and marketing and we get to have real human conversations that just make us feel so grateful to have cultivated the community we, ha- community we have. So continuing to invest in that community, pour my heart into it in service towards those who have chosen to spend time with us is, um, yeah, a big part of the mission this year, right? And to see what emerges organically once you just put yourself in these spaces. So, yeah, I'd say, like, the big the big leap is obviously the book and the new brand around it, um, and then cultivating organically with what's um, already established and see where we land. So exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. This has been uh, super fun and interesting and um, insightful. Yeah, yeah, Ryan, it's such a pleasure. I mean, you just, uh, you summed up so many things that we talk about uh, in a different way and in a really um, clear way. Mm. Yeah. So thanks for doing yeah. that. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, it was it was a pleasure, um, you know, hanging with you both. You know, we talked about curating people you love spending time with. I would sit down with a coffee um, in the middle of the woods with either of you and just jam on all things all day. So let's find some woods. Do that. Let's find some woods. There's <laughs> some right there. Um, yeah. Hey, right. Where where can you you are kind of elusive in a really cool way online? Mm-hmm. Where if you had to send people somewhere, where would you send them? That's a great question. Um, if they are most interested in the book, The Seven Initiatory Fires of Modern Manhood, and the essays around that topic, um, icuking.com would be the best place 
to find out more. Um, I'm not publishing under the name Ryan there, so don't be surprised if you don't see it. That's a topic for another conversation, yeah. actually. <laughs> um, but icuking.com, and then for all things marketing-related, um, ryeschwartz.me, or just find me on Facebook, and you could usually see what I'm up to there. But um, yeah. That should do it. Well, once you get that book out, let's do this again. And man, I can't thank you enough. Hey, thanks for listening today. We can't do this without the support of our listeners. So please leave us a review or sign up for our newsletter at subtleartofnotyelling.com. Mm-hmm.